Hello and welcome back to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly session of politics, news and analysis from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News and Hull Daily Mail. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds who follows the ups and downs of politics in Northern England, from the hotly contested red wall seats in our left behind towns to the Labour strongholds in our big cities and the true blue Tory shires in rural parts of the region. There's always something going on, and in this podcast, as well as my daily Northern Agenda newsletter, I try and speak to some of our best-known politicians about the big issues of the day, and hear from experts from across the ideological spectrum about what it all means for the 15 million people who call the North home. There have been some fascinating Northern politics stories this week, I think. Labour leader Keir Starmer faces severe criticism for excluding the left-wing North of Tyne Mayor Jamie Driscoll from the Labour shortlist to be the first ever Metro Mayor of the North East. And there's been a huge backlash to the government's plans to house hundreds of asylum seekers in barges, with Merseyside and Teesside, the reported sites the government are looking at. So let's talk about some of those stories with my guest today, Ruth Hannon, who is based in Manchester and is a director of the People's Powerhouse, a movement that aims to bring Northerners together to have a say on what the future of the North should be. Ruth, it's your first time on the podcast, so welcome along. How are you? It is my first time. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. I'm very well, thank you. It's lovely to have you on, and it's very timely as well, because this week you kindly wrote for us a thought-provoking, I think, uh, opinion piece for the Northern Agenda newsletter, basically responding to an op-ed that we ran last week from Lord Jim O'Neill. So for people who don't know who that is, that is he is the chair of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, which is, is a sort of business-led uh, lobbying group and one of the main thinkers behind the Northern Powerhouse concept, along with George Osborne, the former Chancellor. Now, Lord O'Neill's piece was about how he believes a productive, prosperous north of England could be built through things like innovation-led growth, skills and infrastructure, all the things that we talk about quite a lot on this podcast. But uh, Reef, your piece set out quite a different vision, I think, for northern England and, and I guess the, the, the type of north that we want to create. Can you just sort of take us through the, the, main, the main points? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think, um, I, I mean, first of all, I would say that I think my my father would have been very proud that I essentially picked a fight with a lord. Um, so, yeah, uh, that that's an unusual one for me. But um, yeah, I think I think the reason I asked if if we could respond was that the what what Lord O'Neill was saying didn't feel that new. It felt just like a different version of what we've had in the North before, that um, industry, big business in one way or another can save us. And, and, and I, you know, I think I started my piece as, you know, we're filled with formers, former mining towns, former shipbuilding towns, having come, but being born in one and, and lived there as a child in Selby in Yorkshire. And I feel like what that often leads to is... Um, people not having a say in in those decisions and and having to go along with decisions that might not be being made in Westminster but still feel far away from from them and and in the 21st century with the challenges that we see now with people who are working and you know you we have stories all the time about nurses who have to use food banks and people earn good money but they can't afford to live well and and I think sort of saying bringing different business to the north 
which will bring wages just isn't a complex enough solution to the challenges that we face in the 21st century. And that includes those who, who can't work, those who um, are working as hard as they can and still aren't living a good life, but not even taking into account things like the climate crisis. What does that mean for the North? So I think for me, I feel like we could have a much bolder um, conversation about what the North could be. You know, we have great work being done by organisations like Clares and places like Preston on how you could build a community wealth building model for a whole place. And, and, and we've, you know, there are other people, um, Jamie Driscoll in, in the North of Tyne has, is a proponent of community wealth building. Scotland has kind of set out a very bold vision of both community wealth building and a well-being economy. And I feel like that's the sort of conversation we should start to talk to people in the North about. What does living a good life mean that isn't just about a wage from a hopeful big industry? Because as we've seen, that model has been pushed before and all of those are gone. Um, you know, West Yorkshire and parts of Lancashire decimated by the loss of collieries, um, the North uh, Sea coast where the, we had a fishing industries where we had shipbuilding all gone now and that and the ripple effect into those towns lasts decades um, and then bringing in new business won't turn that around for a really long time so I feel like it's time for a different conversation that isn't led by big business because they don't re even represent all of business you know that's that's a big challenge Northern Powerhouse speaks for big business not even small and medium which most people work in. And I guess the, the points that you're making sort of get right to the heart of a lot of the political debate that there's been about the North, don't, don't they? And in terms of how how do we make the North more prosperous for everyone? And you can see it in places like Teesside, where there's the whole debate about getting all these companies investing, investing in Teesside, where there's really high poverty rates and, you know, high high crime rates and who benefits who benefits from that and I guess the point that I would imagine that Lord O'Neill and people who are in favour of the sort of business-led approach what they might say is that in order to get the things that you're that, that you're talking about you need to have that wealth coming into coming into communities in in the first place like it's very hard to build a good life for people in regions that are very poor because there just aren't the resources there to, to to sustain it and so you have to like the investment and the the business and the jobs that they create that that has to be the starting point before you build any anything else but what you're saying is I guess flipping it on its head and saying it doesn't doesn't have to be that way yeah but I think also as well it's really scrutinizing that you know that argument of we need to bring wealth in to make a place better you know, and and what the community wealth building model talks about a lot is, yeah, but where does that money go when it comes into a place? Um, does it stay in that place or does it go straight back out again? Um, you know, I live right next to Manchester United, um, you know, a huge business. Um, and has that benefited the local community having that huge business here? I think there's a lot of work to be done at looking at 
where those benefits lie, what the impact of those businesses are, um, what what good I, I, I kind of often th- think about um, and, th- and it's often the difference between small businesses and big is are they a part of a community? Are they invested in that community doing well? Um, or are they just using that as a, a, a place to make a profit? You know, a, we, a lot of places in the north now are reliant on big depots being built where people often have precarious contracts, low pay, um, and that, that 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 business might do well, but the money doesn't necessarily stay in that community. And with that, and 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 then, I suppose it's it's that kind of you know you can put a seed in the ground, but unless you tend to that seed, you, you're not going to have a plant that flourishes. And I think I kind of see like business as a bit of a a seed. You can plant that seed, but unless you then nurture how that community can develop, um, and how they that that prosperity can spread um it it it, it doesn't i suppose for me it's, it feels like a, the turn of the same wheel and it feels like that that wheel needs to change direction you mentioned in your piece an example of a, a project that's looking at doing things differently um universal basic income which not everyone i guess will know what that is but um essentially it's the idea that people will be given a certain amount of money, in this case, uh, £1,600 a month by the state, uh, no strings attached to spend as they wish. Uh, And actually, it's happening. It's been tried in a few different places, but it's being tried specifically now in uh, Jarrow, a town south of the River Tyne in the north, northeast. There's a select group of residents will get this money for a few months to see how it impacts on their physical and mental health and you know, I guess just what the impact of it is and and I mean it's, it, there's I think uh, universal basic income is sort of a an article of faith for a lot of people that this or for some people that this is this is the big idea that hasn't been tried yet I mean do you think it's what, what's your view on it do you think it could work I think it has we have to try because what we have now has failed so many people our you know our benefit system our social security to you know to use its original term our social security was there to provide us with security if something went wrong in our lives whether that be illness whether that be uh, disability whether that be a loss of job um and we we see all around us that that doesn't work we see through the high levels of homelessness we see through the fact that people can't survive on what is currently provided um and it feels like then we need to approach it in a different way um we we had a uh, we have a convention every year and last year we had um two different poverty truth commissions come and speak um Morecambe and um Trafford um and it was really powerful to hear what poverty the impact poverty has on people's lives but also the complex reasons why they're in poverty and trying trialing out something like universal basic income, where it has been tried, and um, I think the, I think the biggest trial that's taking place at the moment is across Africa, and it's going to be a ten year program, which is really enormous. Um, but the difference it can make on people's lives, I think that focusing on being well, um, we don't think about how 
expensive it is for us to be unwell, not just for us as individuals, but for our society. It costs, you know, smoking cessation is expensive. People smoking and becoming unwell from smoking is really bad for their health and costs us all huge amounts of money, which is why we try and get people to stop smoking. But we don't apply the same approach to other health inequalities and people living in poverty. Being in poverty is is expensive for everybody. So something like a universal basic income, the impact that could have on not just those individuals who receive it, but again, the community around them, um, I just think can be really profound. So I think trialing it and spreading the word and so people know what it is and they understand it. I think somebody was saying on Twitter about, it's often talked about as money for nothing, um, as opposed to money for anything. Um, and I think I like that kind of thing, like what what opportunities could it provide people if they were given this opportunity. So, yeah, I think um, we have a lot of organisations working on universal basic income across the north, and I think it's a good thing to spread the word more on it so that we all understand what it is and what difference it could make. I saw a tweet uh, from uh, an MP called Brendan Clark-Smith, who is the Conservative MP for Bassett Law in uh, North Nottinghamshire, uh, which uh, I, I, I suspect might reflect some people's view on universal basic income, which is... Uh, they, i.e. the people who run this, will be surprised to hear there's a system already in place regarding income, which is widely referred to as employment. This is an absolutely dreadful idea. And I think the people behind this initiative will struggle to raise the funds necessary. I mean, I, I guess that reflects some people's view on this, which is that if you give people money with no strings attached, it might be a disincentive to finding work. Uh, to put it in rather undiplomatic terms. I mean, presumably we won't know whether that is the case or not until we've done more studies on how this works or doesn't work. I mean, the ones that have been done, I mean, I'm just going to refer back to that MP and I'm going to say, I'm not, I don't want to shock him, but the example he's given of employment isn't working either. <laughs> you know, we have people who have who have precarious contracts. We have people who get paid. You know, if you just look at people like delivery drivers, um, couriers, they don't even get the equivalent of the living wage. And you know, so employment isn't working for us. So to go to go hack back to some kind of idyllic land in the 1950s where everybody worked. 35 hours a week, had very well-protected um, contracts, got double time, oh, the heady days of double time when you worked overtime, they don't exist anymore now. So employment isn't working for people. And this idea that, um, you know, giving people money makes them lazier, um, the evidence that has come out of the trials is is the opposite of that. Let's rattle through a few of the other stories in in the North. So you mentioned Jamie Driscoll earlier, the uh, North of Tyne mayor. So people haven't heard this story. He is hoping to be the first Metro mayor of the North East when that role is elected next year. But it seems unlikely he will be able to do so as a Labour politician because the Labour ruling party, ruling body, have uh, not included him in the shortlist to be Labour's uh, candidate. Uh, and it all it comes down to, it would appear, Jamie Driscoll's decision to appear alongside Ken Loach, the filmmaker who's been kicked out of Labour, 
Uh, he appeared alongside him earlier this year. And as a result of that, the Labour Party have taken the view that he is not a suitable person to represent them as a potential candidate to be the North East mayor. Now, I know you don't particularly want to get into the sort of party politics of this, but in terms of what it tells us about the relationship, I guess, between the big national institutions and our local leaders, I mean, it's got to be a bit of a concern, hasn't it, that a democratically elected metro mayor in one part of the North East is being barred, not from standing as mayor at all, but being standing for mayor in his own party by people who aren't sort of connected to that community. That's that's the sort of concern that leaps out to me. Yeah, I think it, it speaks to the kind of problem with our wider our wider political system of of kind of a lack of transparency, a, a, a lack of kind of democracy, even really. As you say, this is a sitting mayor in the northeast of England, who a very small group of people have decided it isn't even being allowed to. Um, be chosen by the people of the northeast and and i think that i think that's the thing that speaks to me is that it it just shows the problems with our wider model of democracy which is small numbers of people choose and make decisions about places that they're not connected to um you know i mean i think i think jamie is talking about um standing as an independent um but that speaks to the kind of wider challenges about how do people vote and how do people understand um, and have access to the information they need about making good decisions when they vote. And um, I suppose for me, it is that it is that that issue around um, our democratic system just needs overhauling completely. Because even though we have uh, democratically elected mayors in in the devolved um, areas of the north um, how we even have a say in the decisions that they make is incredibly limited um, you know our power as as citizens of the north is pretty much restricted to putting an x in a box once every four years and asked to consult on on issues rather than be active participants in deciding things so I think for me it is that that the northeast residents if he wasn't doing a good job for the northeast those people should have the chance to decide that I mean I guess the option available to him I suppose is to run as an independent or another party which would mean he would be on the ballot paper and people could vote for him but I guess that has its own disadvantages. Now, another story that caught my eye, which we've run a lot in the Northern Agenda, is about about asylum seekers and about the latest government proposals, which is that they want to save money on housing asylum seekers in hotels, which is exorbitantly expensive, and they want to house many of them in barges, uh, which is a plan that has prompted a lot of uproar and anger, particularly in Merseyside and Teesside, because those are reportedly the places where the first two of these barges are being procured by the government. I think they're going to potentially could hold more than a thousand asylum seekers each. And it's prompted a big backlash, even from local conservative MPs like Jacob Young in, in Teesside. I mean, I guess the, 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 the overarching problem is that um, there's this huge backlog of asylum seekers to be processed. There's there's more people fleeing war and persecution and torture 
in other countries and coming here than there used to be, even though we don't get perhaps as many as other countries do. And the, the system is is buckling under that strain and there's not many good good options, are there? But I mean, th- th- this would you agree with the critics of this plan that this is not, not the way forward? I mean, I think for me is... Um to try and always imagine what it would be like in those people's shoes and how I would feel if I were fleeing persecution in the country that I was born and to be told we're going to chuck you on a boat in the middle of and you won't have access to outdoor space and um, you know when you think you're going to somewhere that is a safe and welcoming place I feel for me it's what do we how do we want to be? What do we want our legacy to be as British people, but as Northerners? And for me, that would be to be welcoming and compassionate. Um, and I, for me, this feels like an uncomfortable, quick fix to a broken system. And the people who are going to suffer the most are the people who are already having experienced massive suffering. We um, we had a we had an event. Um, in April, um, looking at housing um, um, and racial justice. And we had a wonderful um, woman um, called Juan Abdullah, who is um, in West Yorkshire, and um, speak. She's an asylum seeker and talked about the trauma of, of that process, but also the trauma of, of kind of being stateless and being homeless and the terrible conditions that, that people are put in. I mean, when we say hotel, I think everybody thinks we're, we're talking about the Ritz-Carlton. Um, and, you know, it's far from that. Um, for me, if you've got a system that isn't working, it is on you to make that system work better, not to punish people who are already phenomenally traumatised. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like... it. it, it, it if I feel ashamed, which this makes me feel, then we shouldn't be doing it. That's my instinct. Interesting. Now, let, let's finish off with something a little bit lighter, although I guess it's some, uh, something that still riles a few people up. There was a um, a few weeks ago, there was a, a delightful, well, heartwarming images from the Rob Borough Marathon in Leeds. Kevin Sinfield is a famous rugby league player, a big fundraiser for motor neurone disease, which Rob Borough has. Uh, he, 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 he did the... Uh, this marathon, he was pushing his friend Rob Burrow all the way to the finishing line. He car- he picked him up and carried him over the finishing line. He's raised millions of pounds for charity, and is uh, and lots of people are saying he should be uh, knighted, should become Sir Kevin Sinfield for for what he's done. But the problem is, uh, he was only last year made an OBE, and so uh, stuffy Whitehall rules, uh, as described in the Daily Mirror, prevent. Uh, him from being made a sir uh, in uh, in the near future. He's going to have to wait a few years. And it, it's been suggested in the mirror that this is actually a levelling up issue. Uh, it's a, an issue that pertains to regional inequality because uh, lots of rugby union players based primarily in the South end up getting honours, whereas big, uh, well-known rugby league players, which is played mostly in the North, are less likely to. I don't know if that's the case or not, but... There is a a story that was in the Times a couple of weeks ago, which is uh, that Vichy Sunak, the Prime Minister, is concerned about 
the number of honours in the honour system that go to the different regions. And it's been pointed out that the northeast and northwest uh, of England are less well represented in the honours list than their population size would suggest. And London is is represented much more. So, so the honours system needs levelling up. Does this matter? Does it matter if people are more likely to get a knighthood or an OBE if they live in London than if they live in Leeds or, or Oldham? Is, it, is that a big issue, do you think? I mean, I, I, I mean, first of all, I think what Kevin Sinfield's done has been amazing, although I can't speak to the league or union, much to the horror of my family that lives in West Yorkshire, I don't really care about rugby <laughs> or know the difference between the two. Um I think it speaks more to is this the is this the best we've got? Is this, you know, I mean, has anybody asked Kevin whether he's bothered about it being being a knight? Um, I'm sure that's not what he set out to do, uh, or what he, you know, his motivation was. Um, and and I think it, I suppose in a way for me it speaks to that kind of model of. Um, how do we recognise the things that people do that are great? And we already know that the, the honours system is um, fairly broken and messy when we look at who gets honours and who doesn't. And having actually nominated for someone for it, it's a very laborious and weird process. Um, were, were you successful in, in, your, in your nomination? Uh, we were. And, 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 and it felt very strange as somebody who doesn't really support that system, but felt like the only way we could have that person recognised for the work that they'd done as a volunteer. But it took us about four years um, for that to get all the way through um, and, and over the finish line. Um, I mean, if, if, if that's the case and it's going to be the system that we always have, it should be fairer. Um, but is this the best system we've got for recognising when people do great things? Probably not, I don't think. Um, I think we should, you know, because there'll be a lot, because it, obviously it, it, the thing it depends on is somebody taking the time to nominate you. And I bet there's tons of people quietly going about their lives doing awesome things on a daily basis and they'll never get an OBE or a knighthood. So maybe we should just give them to everybody and then it'll be fair. It's like a universal basic income for knighthood. <laughs> <laughs> one in every 10 people just gets a knighthood, yeah. just ran, ran, randomly assigned. Yeah, let's give that a go. Yeah, couldn't be any worse than the current system, could it? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, as, it's as arbitrary, arguably. You could you could say that. Well, that is a, a good a good note to end on. That's a, a contentious a contentious point that people have views on. Um, Ruth, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.